You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would teach us according to your word, that we would hear and be given the sense, the meaning, what this word is. And God, I pray that by your spirit today, you would cultivate in us faith in your word, a love for your word, a trust in the promises of your word, wariness over the warnings of your word, that you would help us to see and delight in the ultimate revelation of your word, which is Jesus Christ, that we would love and delight in him. God, make us a people of the word who are deeply marked by this word, who love this word, who study this word, who memorize this word, um, who, who ooze this word, who, who speak this word and counsel with this word and parent with this word and, and pursue marriages according to this word. God, may this word mark us, may this word rivet us, and may we see and know and delight in Christ from this word. In your name we pray, amen. On Wednesday evening of this week, Jordan Peterson was in town. Jordan Peterson is, um, if you don't know who he is, is a public intellectual, has written a number of books. Uh, He is a Jungian-ish psychologist uh, from Canada, and he has um, become, uh, well, a bit of a firestorm everywhere he goes. Um, And on Wednesday evening, I went with a a handful of guys down to the Belco Theater, um, and we heard Jordan Peterson speak. Now, the most fascinating thing about hearing Jordan Peterson speak is that when he spoke, um, I could summarize what he said over the course of about an hour and 40 minutes or so um, with, with kind of just this simple kind of summary. You should work hard. Like, really. And you should work hard at things that are fulfilling, And you should learn what's fulfilling from looking at what people have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Now people paid money to go sit in a giant auditorium. And just to be clear, about 5,000 people paid to go sit in an auditorium and to be told by Jordan Peterson There is an actual world out there and you, because of the nature of the world as it exists, um, to to, to find success and fulfillment in that world, you need to work hard. You need to learn from from those who've gone before you and you need to set your mind to diligently pursue um, uh, the good life in a world that's designed. It it, it simply and actually is. Now, Now here's why I find this fascinating. 5,000 people. Can you believe that? 5,000 people paying not cheap prices to go and hear a man tell them to work hard. Doesn't that strike you as remarkable? Like remarkable in how unremarkable it is. This is the way I would put it. There is, I think, a, a, a desperation, a growing desperation in our day for, for someone to give 
us a place to stand. Like firm ground. A world that that is there. To be dealt with on its own terms. Not not a world that's infinitely malleable. Um, Not a a world or an, um, an understanding of the self that's kind of whatever you want or desire, um, but, but rather there is a hunger made very evident to me that Wednesday night um, in that room as a man stood up and said revolutionary things in our day that simply amounted to there is a world and if you want to succeed and have happiness in that world, you, you should order your life in such a way that you work hard in the midst of that world. Now this is fascinating. It's fascinating for a number of reasons. One, um, because In the past, the debate that was ensuing within the culture was, hey, it was not, what's the world like? Like, is there a real world out there or not a real world out there? It was a debate over what's true about the world that's there. In other words, everyone believed, unless you were crazy, that there was an actual world that had rules, that there were real things and a real nature to that world. There were things that were wise and there were things that were foolish. There were things that, were, um, that, that would benefit you in that world. There were things that would harm you in that world. And the debates were over how to define wisdom, how to define goodness, how to define the nature of the world that was there. It was a debate over the nature of objective reality. There is an objective reality. We can know it. And now what we're going to debate and fight about is how to best live in the world as it exists. Does that make sense? That was a long time ago, by my measure. <laughs> but because the debate has shifted now. Such that the debate is, is there a world that's actually there? It doesn't care what you feel about it, doesn't care what you want from it. It just exists. And, and, and so there's one side of the debate which says there's a world. A world that exists, that has order. And it's there to be discovered. It's there to be enjoyed. It's there to be endured. But you don't get to make it whatever you want it to be. It's simply there. And if you don't account for it, it will destroy you. Versus a world, a very clownish world, that says the world is whatever we want it to be. That myself, my identity, is whatever I want it to be. That the world is what I feel feel like it should be. The world is what I desire it to be. Um, That myself is whatever I feel like I might be right now. And and that side of the debate has been winning, at least in terms of volume, for the last several years. But here was the thing that was awakening to me on Wednesday night. There are a lot of people who are tired of that, that side of the debate who realize it doesn't work, who realize that it leads to chaos and madness. And and, and here's where we arrive at Nehemiah 8. 
You see, at the, the foundation of what Christianity confesses is that there is a God who made the world and is not concerned about how you feel about it. You see, he is there. He's absolutely there. He's not who you feel like he should be. He's not who necessarily you want him to be. He simply and absolutely is. And he's spoken to existence a world. And then grace upon grace upon grace. He didn't leave us to kind of just figure stuff out on our own. He spoke to us. He revealed to us the nature of this world that he created. And even more than that, the nature of who he is and what he's like. You see, there were 5,000 people at the Belco Theater on Wednesday night, desperate to be told that the world is a certain way, to know how do I live wisely in the world, given what the world is. And here's where Jesus Christ is far better than Jordan Peterson. He has made that world. He has described that world. And he has given us instructions on how we might live well, wisely, with skill in that world. So I want us to learn from Nehemiah and Ezra what we're to do with this word, this word that has been spoken to us by God and how we're to live in light of it in the world. We've been walking the last couple of weeks um, um, through this the, the thing that will ensue anytime Christians, anytime the people of God seek to live out their life faithfully, constructing and building a city, building lives, building families, building schools, building businesses that honor and glorify God. What will happen when a church gathers in the name of Jesus, absolutely loyal to Jesus, who trust his grace and his mercy, um, who, who receive his forgiveness and seek to live according to his law and his ways? Um, that that's the goal that's set for us in Nehemiah. And, and then as you begin to do it, the last two weeks, we talked about how that will necessarily lead to conflict, painful conflict. It will lead to slander. It will lead to misunderstanding. It will lead to, um, um, a, 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 frankly, a difficult situation in which we are called to cultivate a kind of life in the city that will be offensive to many. Now, given that, we move now to what stands at the center of our life in the city. And, and I want you to notice a couple of things um, from the text as we get going. First, um, if you want the corresponding kind of what leads up to or kind of where does Ezra show up? Where does this guy Ezra come from? Um, if you look over in Ezra chapter 7, um, Ezra is not in Jerusalem for most of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, we have Darius or Artaxerxes. Um, he uh, commissions um, Ezra to go to the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting, he says, go, you need to instruct these people on the law of God. You need to instruct them on all that God has said in his word, um, lest his wrath be against us. So here you have a, who was a pagan king. I believe he was converted through, through a whole lot of different means, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, God was gracious to him and he commissions, 
He commissions this priest, this scholar, this one who knows and understands the law of God and says, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. The temple's been built now. You need to go to the temple. Worship's been reestablished in Jerusalem and you need to go and instruct the people of God according to the law of God. And so Ezra returns. And when the Nehemiah gathers the people in chapter eight and the people come to be instructed from the law. And so the law is read from morning until the afternoon. And then, and this is really important, it says that um, there, there were Levites there, there were priests there, there were scribes there that then go out among the people and give the sense. They, they give an understanding. They, they explain to all the people who have now heard the law read, they explain to them what it means, how they should live in light of it, and what they should do. Basic line of the story then is everyone is sad. They cry, they weep. In other words, They've come out of exile. They've returned to Jerusalem. They've begun worshiping again in the presence of God, bringing their offerings, receiving the forgiveness of sins. And someone stands up and reads what God says, and the first response is to weep. It's going to be important later. But then they're instructed, don't weep. This isn't a sad day. This is a glorious day. Because God has spoken to us. He's revealed to us what we're supposed to know. He hasn't left us in the dark. He hasn't left us in our sin. And he hasn't left us in our blindness. He hasn't left us enslaved to our blindness. But rather, God has shined a light. He has revealed to us what the world is, what it's like, and how to live well in it. So that's the story. Now I want to make five observations from the text. First, as we consider the the, the call for reformation, for revival, to see the work of God restored in our city, to see Jesus worshipped and loved and treasured in our city, um, as we think about our lives faithfully in that city, um, you have to understand the order. It's, it's, It's interesting in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, the, the order in which God calls them to, to, to rebuild. He doesn't begin with a Bible study. He begins with worship. He, he begins with um, the, the, the central aspect of worship was namely was sacrifices and prayers. So the altar is built and remember the foundations of the temple are laid and then the temple is built. And what happens at the center of the worship of God's people um, is an acknowledgement of sin and an atonement for sin. This is a pattern that repeats itself over and over and over and over again in Scripture. Um, think about just kind of the, um, the, the, the massive story that, that lay at the heart of the whole Bible, that, that, that God goes to Egypt and rescues Israel out of slavery to idols, out of slavery and bondage to sin, And then he gives them the law and instructs them on how to live. This order is vitally important for you to understand. We come and we worship. We we come and, and have our sins forgiven through the work of Jesus. We worship him and then we receive the word. 
See, there is this constant temptation um, at the heart of all of humanity um, that we want to bring our good works, we want to bring our obedience to God as somehow evidence that we are worthy of his mercy or or worthy of his good will. The Bible reverses it over and over and over again. It, It calls us to first come and receive mercy, to first come and receive grace, to first come and receive the forgiveness of sins. And now in light of that, to obey God's law, to first be liberated from slavery and now come and obey all that God commands. So the first thing I want us to observe is that this begins with worship begins with the the proclamation and enactment of the gospel itself. That our sins have been dealt with. They've been forgiven. We're welcomed home. This is where all of the renewal that God wants to do in our lives and in our city begins. The declaration of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And the response of worship. Second, this word, this scripture, this Bible is a word that describes the world, the whole world. Um, This is not a a word that that is kind of one option on how to approach the universe um, and there are other equally possible options um, for, for how one can approach life and marriage and child rearing and business and money and sin and justice. Like, hey, this is one thing on the menu of reality. Choose the one that works best for you. Um, no, no, the claim at the heart of this text, this whole text is this book is the book that describes reality. Darius in issuing his decree in the book of Ezra, sending Ezra to this temple and issuing his decree that the temple should be rebuilt um, and shouldn't be hindered in its rebuilding. He doesn't describe the God of Israel as the God of Israel. He describes him, he names him as the God of highest heaven. This has led scholars to take note of the fact that there's something fascinating going on at this time. You see, it was, it was common for empires to acknowledge, and it was common with Rome, it was common with Greece, um, to acknowledge the gods of other nations. But they were, they were geographically isolated gods. They were tribal deities. So they might acknowledge the god of the Jews. But that's not what Darius does. He names him as the god of highest heaven. In other words, here is a God, and when this God speaks, he's not describing um, a set of religious practices for one small group of people who happen to kind of live in the right place or be of the right race um, who are, or within a market economy like ours has happened to choose, the, um, choose the, the, the religion of Christianity to be the religious grocery store in which they shop. Now, now what he claims, and I, I pray if you're a visitor here, if, you don't, if you're not a Christian yet, that you would hear this. The claims of God, that the claims of Jesus Christ are totalizing claims. When he gives us this book, his claim, as crazy as it may sound to you, 
is that this book accurately describes everything in the universe. That what's given to us here is not merely a religious philosophy, it's not merely a set of religious ethics um, or or religious ceremonies, but what he describes here um, encompasses everything that is. um, That the claims of Jesus and the claims of this book are that God has in this book and through this book described the world that is there. In other words, reality is not infinitely malleable. You are not who ever you want to be, but rather we have been made and this world has been made and that world now has been described for us by God and you have been described and defined by the word of the Lord and the, 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 the way of living wisely and well and understanding the world is to listen to this God, to listen to his words and to receive them. Is the word that describes everything. And here's the, here's the challenge. This runs counter to almost everything being said in our day. Be who you want to be, be who you feel like you are. Um, it was actually fascinating and in line with this. Uh, One of the things Jordan Peterson said Wednesday night is um, it's a strange world to live in a world in which um, someone can say to you, I feel like a woman. He he said, um, like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) And frankly, you don't either. (laughs) To, to, To live in a world in which the universe is whatever you want it to be. That's the philosophy guiding our world right now. And it's everywhere. But what we confess and believe, what Darius is saying when he says, hey, you go instruct people on the law that has come from the God of highest heaven. He's sending Ezra with this word to tell them, here is what the world is. Here is who God is. Here's what is good, and here's what is evil. Here's what is beautiful, and here's what is ugly. Here's what is true. Here's what is false. And to speak that word with clarity. Second, the word is the law word of the king. The one who is of highest authority. Um, this is uh, just a, a slight divergence from the first point. This is the, world that, the word that describes the real world. Rather, um, I, I want you to catch with this the kind of authority that this word has. Darius sends Ezra to give these instructions. Um, and he speaks as um, the ruler of the world, of the known world at the time. And he commissions Ezra to go and instruct people on a word that's not his word, um, but he um, sends him to deliver the word from the one who is even higher than Darius. So the word comes as the word from the highest authority. Not only is it true in that it describes the whole world faithfully and accurately, 
Rather, it's a word that comes from one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so when this word is spoken, when it's read, when you're holding it in your hands, you need to understand you're holding a book that lays claims on you. It makes demands on you. Like, we don't approach this like other books, like any other book. Any other book you go, you look at it, you think with some discernment, like, should I believe this or not believe this? Is this true or not true? Do I like this or do I not like this? Do I find it appealing or not appealing? Like, I I, I teach American Lit at a uh, high school American Lit at a school, and and one of the questions I actually want people, uh, I want my students to engage with is like, did you like this book? Why did you like it? Why did you not like it? They're actually really important questions. That's not a question about this book. In other words, this book, when it's read, when it's proclaimed, actually makes authoritative claims on your life. In other words, it demands something from the world. And it has, God has, through this word, the right to do so. In other words, it's not just providing suggestions. It's an authoritative word spoken by the king that you must obey. That you must believe. That you must trust. That this book actually commands your emotions is foreign in our day, right? We're ruled by our emotions. No, this Bible, this book commands them. Like, take delight. What if you don't personally find it delightful? It doesn't ask. It just commands. Delight yourself in the Lord. What if it says to tremble with fear? What if you're not afraid? Didn't ask. You must tremble and be afraid. Commands us to be grateful. It commands us to to praise. It commands us to be filled with joy. It commands our emotions. It commands our actions. Go and do this. It forbids actions. Don't do this. It also describes for us the nature of reality, like we just said. And guess what? It's not just one option. We live in a world in which you are presented with options and you pick the one that either sounds right to you or feels good to you. That's not what this book does. This book describes the universe and demands that you say yes. Amen. So we have a book that describes the whole world. We have a book that carries the weight and the authority of God himself. A book that commands and tells us how to live and tells us what to believe and tells us how we ought to feel. We also have a word that is a word of grace for the people of God. If when you hear this book, you hear primarily the note of condemnation, 
you have not rightly heard this word. Oh, if you refuse to believe this word, if you refuse to trust what this word reveals, oh, it will condemn you. But, but at the heart of what this book is about is about the God who commands, the God who creates, and the God who has come and dealt with our sins in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This book is ultimately about Christ himself. It's a wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul talks about um, that um, when the law of Moses is taken up and read, that a veil remains over the Jews of the time who didn't believe in Jesus. A veil remains that blinds them from seeing what's actually here. He said when someone turns to Christ, when someone repents of their sin, when someone believes in Jesus, says the veil is torn away, and they see the, the, the glory of God, and they're changed. The context is in the reading of the scriptures. Do you get it? That this word is not, it's not a word that fundamentally condemns. It's a word that frees. It's a word that cleanses. It's a word that calls us to behold and marvel at the person of Christ. His work on our behalf, his wisdom his greatness, his sovereignty, his authority, his mercy. So this book comes as a word of grace. And the exiles, as they hear this word and they feel the weight of their own sin, they feel the horror over their own abandonment of this word, of not even knowing this word or having this word, they weep and they're immediately instructed, no, 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 you've misunderstood what this word should do. What this word should lead to is drinking, but not that kind of drinking. Like, it should lead to feasting. It should lead to singing. It should lead to worship and joy. So we must learn to hear this word as a people rescued and redeemed and washed by Jesus. So that when the law comes, when commands come, when, when the nature of sin is exposed, it is a good and liberating word because our sins have been dealt with. And God comes by his word to set us free. Last observation. This word is the word that reveals the face of Jesus Christ. The response as they hear this word that they're instructed to pursue is a response of lifting up their hands and worshiping God. We gather in worship and worship. Um, we're reminded that our sins are absolutely forgiven and then the word is proclaimed and the response should be to lift up our hands and worship more. To, to lift up our souls and delight in this God, this God who has revealed himself to us, and frankly, this God who is stunningly beautiful and powerful and glorious and wise. This God who makes sense of a world that, that right now feels inundated with darkness and chaos and insanity. And in the midst of that, a God who is wise and clear and speaks with wisdom about the world that he has made, that he has redeemed and is redeeming, should stun us into worship and joy. 
as we see Jesus Christ and we see the glory of a God who is not confused or upset or, or anxious about this world that is so anxiety-inducing, so confusing at times, as it continues to take up words, Bible words, like love and justice and righteousness and twist them and turn them so so they mean nonsensical things. God comes and he speaks, and every week we come to this book and he speaks to us, a word that reorders everything and clarifies what love is, what justice is, um, what authority is, what, what it looks like to live generously, what it looks like to speak with grace and eloquence and kindness, what it means to, to, to raise up children in the world. Do you see the majesty and the beauty Quite apart from, before we ever get to what should we do, just considering the fact that God is good and wise and sovereign and clear in the midst of a world filled with confusion and darkness and ugliness. He comes and speaks a clear and glorious word. What's hard for us is we go to this book and we're constantly looking first for ourselves. I want to implore you, go to this book and be driven by the question, what must he be like? What does he look like? What is he doing? What does this reveal about his character? Like go to this book before, before you try to figure out how to live in light of it. And you should, by the way. But before you ask that question, go to this book to see God. Oh, that you would open your Bibles on a Monday morning. First, because you want to see him. You want to know what he's like, what he's doing in the world. So now, what do we do with this? How does does this word shape our lives and shape our church and shape our city. What do we do with this? Before anything else, commit yourselves to worship God in Jesus Christ. I'm I'm not starting with read. I'm starting with worship. Commit yourself to gathering with the saints and Commit yourself to to hearing again the word of Jesus Christ. Um, Commit yourself again to gather in his presence. Commit yourself again to confess your sins in his presence. Commit yourself again to be reminded that he pardons sinners in his presence. Commit yourself um, to gathering with the people of God in the presence of God and worshiping him. May that be the cornerstone uh, um, uh, on which everything else in your life and every bit of your Bible reading and studying um, and, and living in light of is built on. Worship God in Christ. And Ezra, before they get to the instruction, they begin with the altar, and then they build the temple. And then, um, and then once the temple is done and the walls are built, they gather the people to instruct them on how to live. They would be a people who are driven first to gather in the presence of God and to worship. And then second, before you ever open that book on a Monday morning, or on a Sunday afternoon, or on a Sunday morning. Believe it. 
is exactly backwards from how our world works. But before you read it, commit yourself to believe it. Um, A pastor was in town. We had a number of pastors over to our house to hear uh, this this old guy um, share some wisdom on how to pastor. Uh, And it was a bunch of young pastors. A lot of church planters were there. And um, a friend of mine, Jay, who was here a few weeks ago, uh, said to him, Hey, after these you know, decades of ministry, if you could give us one word of advice, what would it be? And he says, decide now before you ever step in the pulpit. You will follow the text wherever it leads. You will believe it no matter what it says. And so I commend to you as Christians, before you ever open this book, commit yourself to believe whatever this book says. In other words, submit yourself to this word before you submit yourself to your own reasons, your own sense of knowledge. Commit yourself to trusting this book before you ever open it. Third, I want you to read this book and study this book and memorize this book. What a day. In the vast kind of history of, of the church, of the people of Israel, like I, could anyone imagine How many Bibles are in this room right now? Like you have a Bible. I have like a hundred Bibles. I don't know how many I have. I have a lot of Bibles. You probably have stacks of Bibles, different translations of Bibles, Bibles that are different color leather. You have some hardback Bibles. You got maybe a paperback Bible, which is awesome. You got all kinds of Bibles. Like we are surrounded by Bibles. There's a bunch of Bibles in the pews. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, grab one of those Bibles. There's some really cool thin ones and then there's some chunkier ones if you want a chunkier one, but you should take a Bible out of here. Um, there are Bibles everywhere. You can go online on your phone and download like a thousand apps that all have the Bible. You can um, listen to the Bible. You can, um, you, you can buy all kinds of different Bibles and translations of the Bible. Like we are surrounded by the Bible. Like no one in, else in the entirety of history. I, I mean, do you realize how recently it was that if you wanted to, to, to see or hear, or understand what was in the Bible, you had to go somewhere to hear it read. That for centuries, if you were to carry around the scriptures, you had to memorize it. Um, I had a professor um, in grad school who, uh, he would spend his summers in Israel and Palestine uh, working with churches there. <laughs> and, uh, and he said it never failed. He, he would get in a taxi in Jerusalem and the taxi driver would know the Psalms. Like, and when I say know the Psalms, I mean he knew all, they knew all the Psalms. Like he would play a game sometimes and just start reading a portion of the Psalms um, and the, the, the guy driving the taxi would complete it for him like over and over and over again. Like we have the Bible and so commit yourself, set aside time um, to, to read it, to study it, to memorize it. Be saturated with this word. Then as you... Believe this word as you read this word and study this word and memorize this word. Learn to love this word. Um, I've used this illustration excessively. I'm going to continue to use it. Like there, there are places in the Bible that will taste like 
steamed broccoli to you. And if you're here and you like steamed broccoli, I apologize. I hate steamed broccoli. It's gross. I don't like the smell of it. Just the thought of the water that was absorbing all that broccoli juices is gross to me. Um, the smell in the house is I can't be in the house. Like I do not like steamed broccoli. I don't like it with cheese. I don't like it with bacon bits. You could like, you could drown this broccoli in like brisket and I would, would hate the brisket and it's hard for me to even say that. Um, like there's stuff in the Bible that's hard really hard, which is exactly what you'd expect, right? If a word has come from a God um, that, 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 which most of humanity has been in rebellion against him, all of humanity has been in rebellion against him, um, and now he's redeeming us and transforming us, you would expect to run up in, against things in the Bible that you don't like, that your neighbor won't like. In fact, your neighbor will hate the last two weeks or any, any indication of what you can expect when you proclaim and believe and live in light of this word. But the problem isn't this book. Like, as much as I, I, I hate, hate to admit it, the problem isn't the steamed broccoli. It's me. Like, broccoli's good for me. I hear. And it, it, it's, it's objectively good. And I despise it, but, but I'm upside down down if I think the problem is the broccoli and not me. This word, parts of it will taste like steamed broccoli to you, but do not ever be confused about where the problem is. The problem isn't this book. The problem isn't its teaching on sexuality. The problem is not its teaching on disciplining children. The problem is not its teaching about money or marriage the problem is not its teaching about when you should get up in the morning and how hard you should work in your life. The problem is absolutely you and me. Not what this book says. And so as you read it, as you study it, as you memorize it, beware of every impulse in you to excuse yourself from listening to and obeying and believing this word. Your natural impulse will be to say, yeah, but. Or does it really say that? Instead, learn to believe this word, to study this word, to love this word, and to obey this word. And last, learn to describe the world with this word to everyone. Parents, to your children, constantly. Husbands, to wives, constantly. Wives to husbands, constantly. Friends to friends, constantly. And to neighbors and to co-workers everywhere. Redescribe the world. Because our world is desperate to hear a word that is true, that claims to describe the world. We come and we proclaim Christ the one who has made the world, the one who in his life has redeemed the world, the one who now has ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules the world. Let's pray.
Father, it is a beautiful and remarkable thing that at the center of the worship that you command is a meal. Not a meal where we feed you, but a meal where you feed us and we eat together with our God. So I pray now as we come to this table that it would be, again, a word for us, a word that shapes all of reality, that the God of the universe has rescued us, the God of the universe has dealt with our sins, the God of the universe has called us to a table where he sits with us as our Father and he eats with us a meal. A meal where we are united with Jesus. Our sins are absolutely dealt with. And we are raised from the dead. In your name we pray. Amen.